Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, where we left off. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one will stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of the women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be with before him. After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, and within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. When you read these passages, you're thinking, I have no idea what you just said. In chapter 11, we're given a series of prophecies that concern Gentile world powers. Daniel has made it clear that Israel is going to suffer subjugation, domination by Gentile powers until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And Jesus speaks of the time of the Gentiles in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. There's this time where the Babylonians are going to control the future of the Jewish people. The Persians, then the Greeks and then the Romans. So let me be clear. A prophet is someone who tells God's will and God's future to the people as divine inspiration leads. But there's something else. Prophecy incorporates God's will and God's judgments. It contains the defense of truth and righteousness and certainty. And so the first prophecy in the chapter concerned the Persian Empire in verse 2. Three kings important to Bible history would succeed Cyrus, who was ruling when Daniel receives this vision. And so understand that literally the prophecies are going to unfold. And in Daniel's time, there are hundreds of years in the future. And so these prophecies are now a part of our ancient past. Daniel is told that after three Persian rulers, a fourth ruler would arise who would be far richer and more powerful than any of his predecessors. This king would use his considerable wealth and resources to make trouble for the kingdom of Greece. That king in history is known as Xerxes I. In the Bible, he is called Asuerius, and that's in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 22, during the time of Queen Esther. The second prophecy concerns a future king of Greece. That's verses 3 and 4. That was a reference to Alexander the Great, who lived from 336, or ruling basically, 336 to 323 B.C., so the, the prophecy indicates that the vast empire of Alexander is going to be divided into fourths, like a pie. 
Imagine you're at Marie Callender's or Village Inn and you've got this great big coconut cream pie. It's sliced in half and then it's sliced in quarters. And one fourth and another fourth are going to largely determine the outcome of what happens to God's people, the Jewish people. And so the divided empire is going to set the stage for years of pain and conflict and difficulty for the Jewish people and the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. So Daniel refers to these kingdoms as the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Half of the pie is going to go to Seleucid in the northern part of the empire. The, the second part is going to be the king of the south. It's going to be, belong to what's called the Ptolemies of Egypt. So in verses 6 through 12, we saw the Egyptian dominance over Syria. That means the south will have dominance over the north. And then we'll see the Syrian dominance over Egypt from verses 13 through 20. This is the fourth prophecy in the chapter. The angel refers to five significant historical facts concerning Daniel and his people through prophecy. We've already studied some of these important historical facts. We learned that these two dynasties, one to the north and one to the south, would form an alliance through marriage in verse 6. We learn that the alliance will not last. Then we learn that the brother of the princess of the southern kingdom will attack the northern kingdom to avenge his sister in verse 7. Daniel's vision includes the predictions of the son of Seleucus II, and then Seleucus III and Antiochus III, who's also known as the Great in verses 9 through 11. The brothers are going to mobilize this vast army. They're going to stir up war. They're going to overwhelm their enemies. They're going to conquer to the north Phoenicia. They are going to incorporate what's called the glorious land. And the glorious land is a reference to the land of Israel. It's the land of the holy land. This is the land where God's promises are going to be confirmed. And then it talks about some of Egyptians' fortress cities. So the Lord reveals to Daniel that the Egyptian king of the south, that's Ptolemy number four, will be filled with sinful pride. And he's going to be able to slaughter thousands of people. His victory is going to be short-lived because God isn't going to allow him to continue and prevail over the surrounding nations. His triumphant slaughter of armies and populations is going to come to a crashing halt. An indication that God not only knows what's going to happen, but God is going to judge what's going to happen in verse 12. So the most important thing to remember isn't the dates and the events of these specific prophecies the most important thing to remember is that predictive prophecy is one of the best evidences of the supernatural origin of the Bible someone has asked you how do you know that the Bible's true some of you have asked me how do you know that the Bible's true and again, this is one of the reasons, predictive prophecy. I can point to the manuscript evidence. I can point to the archaeology. But it is predictive prophecy. God speaking hundreds, even thousands of years in advance, telling you exactly how things are going to unfold. Remember, this is our claim that the Bible is an extraordinary book. And because it's an extraordinary book, it makes extraordinary claims. The Bible claims to know about the creation of man and the fall of man and the redemption of human beings and then how human beings could possibly be saved. We know that something has gone wrong, terribly wrong. And the Bible makes predictions that the Jewish people will bring forth the Jewish Messiah. And so the truth of these 
prophecies are now a matter of historical record. And so now we come to the fifth prophecy in verses 12 through 14. In verse 12 it says, when he has taken away the multitude. Who's the he? This is Ptolemy number four, who's also known as Philopater or Philopater, if you insist on mispronouncing it. Ptolemy the fourth, we learned in verse 11, was again one of the ancestors of the king of Egypt. He is going to march out in rage and rally an army. He is going to defeat Antiochus number three of Syria. This is going to cause the Egyptian king to swell with pride. The Bible says he will slaughter thousands, but his, his success won't last long. Now, in history, this is known as the fourth Syrian war between Ptolemy number four and Antiochus number three. Why is this important to Daniel's vision? The times of the Gentiles are going to include the control of the Holy Land or the Glorious Land. The Galilee to the north, Samaria in the middle, Judah in the south. And so you have to understand something, that these prophecies are written from God's perspective for the Jewish people. Why? Because it's the unfolding events of this little strip of land that is going to mean all of the difference in the world. The control of the Galilee and Samaria is going to figure prominently in Israel's unfolding history. So, you'll remember the times of the Gentiles include the control of Israel and Jerusalem by world powers. Babylon, Persia, Greece, eventually Rome. So the balance of power is going to shift from the south. The Egyptians controlling Israel. And it's going to shift to the north with Syria controlling Israel. A little background. In 218 BC, Antiochus III successfully penetrates the Galilee and Samaria. This is the place where the Sea of Galilee or, or the Lake of Galilee is, is located. This is going to be the future home and ministry, if you will, headquarters of Jesus. And then Samaria. The control of the Galilee and Samaria then fell into Seleucid hands in verse 11. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. That is, the enemy of Ptolemy. The shift of power is going to be... The Egyptians are no longer going to control the place. The Seleucids are going to control it. The encroachment of Antiochus III into the Galilee and Samaria was a severe threat to Egyptian hegemony. So in 217 BC, Ptolemy number four gathers a huge army. He trains that army and he fields that army. And so in 217 BC, Ptolemy is going to engage Antiochus III at one of the most famous battles in all of history. It's called the Battle of Raphia. Raphia is, a, is the traditional dividing line between Palestine and Egypt, modern Rafa. I don't have a, a, a map up, I wish I did, but if you have a map in your Bible, if you go all the way to the south of where Israel is, where the Gaza Peninsula is, where it joins Egypt, this is the last stop, if you will, before you get to Egypt. So Rafa is about 20 miles or 32 kilometers south and east of Gaza on the Mediterranean coast. Antiochus claims an army of some 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, 102 elephants. Ptolemy's army contains 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, 73 elephants. So they've got these massive elephants as instruments of war. What's important for you 
is that the biggest battle in the history of that region is going to take place at that time. Antiochus number three, who is the northern king, is going to be badly beaten by the forces of Ptolemy number four, even though Seleucus, or that is Antiochus number three, has a much larger army and much more equipment. Why is this important? Because the victory is going to secure the control of Jerusalem, the control of Samaria, the control of Galilee, which is going to go back to Ptolemy. That control is going to be maintained until Ptolemy number four in 203 BC dies. What's important for you to understand is that he dies in his mid-30s. He's maybe 35 or 36 years old. His empire is going to be inherited by his six-year-old son, Ptolemy number five, Epiphanes, who lives from 204 to 180 BC. Those of you who grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition like me may, have be, may be somewhat familiar with books in the Bible that are called the apocryphal books. They're not, they're not inspired books like the rest of the books in the Bible, but there was one called 1st Maccabees and another one called 2nd Maccabees. And then there's another one called 3rd Maccabees. Now again, unfortunately, if you weren't like me and a geek and you actually read these books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees has to do with the Maccabean revolt, but number three Maccabees has nothing to do with the Maccabeans. I don't know why it's called 3rd Maccabees other than it takes place not before the Maccabean Revolt, not, not after the Maccabean Revolt, but before the Maccabean Revolt. It just so happens that number 3 Maccabees talks about the visit of this guy, Ptolemy number 4, who happens to be in Daniel chapter 11 of our Bible. In that book, it relates the visit of Ptolemy number four to Jerusalem after the battle has taken place. Ptolemy number four has defeated Antiochus the general. He marches into Jerusalem. He very much wants to go into the temple. And according to the account in Maccabees number three, he purposes in his heart that he's going to go into that temple as he's making his way to the temple, he is stunned. He is struck dumb by supernatural powers. In other words, as he's trying to make his way into the temple, Ptolemy number the four falls to his knees. It's almost like he has some sort of stroke or he blacks out. He's unable to enter the temple. He believes that the Jewish people have bewitched him. He is angry and upset because he wants, he's fascinated by the Jewish people. And in Alexandria, it has one of the largest Jewish populations in the world. More Jews at that point lived in Alexandria and Egypt than lived in Jerusalem. He believes that the Jews have bewitched him. He goes back to Alexandria, which is the port city of the Nile. And he decides that he is going to punish the Jews for bewitching him and not allowing him to go into the temple. There is a gigantic Colosseum in there called the Hippodrome. He takes some of these Egyptian, oh, excuse me, the African elephants, and he injects them to make them angry so that they will stampede and turn on the Jews and crush them. He herds the Jews of the city of Alexandria into this hippodrome with the intention of killing them. He kills tens of thousands of them. He is allegedly killing them because they refuse to worship the gods of Egypt. But then something strange happens. The elephants in some sort of bizarre rage, instead of trampling the Jews, turns on Ptolemy's troops and tramples them. And this is just verse 12. Now 
look at verse 13. For the king of the north, this is the Seleucid king, Antiochus number three, will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. He was humiliated and now he's going to return for another bout with the Ptolemies in the south. Antiochus number three takes advantage of the premature death of Ptolemy number four. Remember what I said to you. Ptolemy number four dies in his mid-30s. He dies in what historians call suspicious circumstances. That means we don't know exactly how he died. Did God just kill him? Was he poisoned? We don't know. But we know that his young son assumes the throne through proxies. Antiochus number three is going to take advantage of that premature death. He is going to form an alliance with Philip number five of Macedon to initiate what the historians call the fifth Syrian war. In other words, the king of the north is going to form an alliance with one of what's called the Diadochi, which was the successor kingdoms. Philip number five is in charge of what you and I would call the northern part of Greece that goes all the way into the Baltic states. And so in, number four, in verse 14, it says, Now in those days and in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. In other words, Ptolemy's hegemony, his control is going to be overthrown. It says also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. In other words, when it says violent men of your people, he's talking about Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Remember, there's this great big divide. Jewish people who are for the Syrians and Jewish people who are for the Egyptians. And so again, these are the Jewish people who are trying to play both powers so that they could have some semblance of independence themselves. And so what follows is the fifth prophecy. The angel is going to predict a shift in power. Instead of the Egyptians controlling the Holy Land, now the Syrians are going to control the Holy Land. So what follows is the Battle of Gaza in 201 BC. So Antiochus number three goes and gains, once again, temporary control of Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee. But he is going to be pushed back by the Ptolemaic armies, headed by one general Scopus. Now, for those of you who ever get to go to Israel, or if you ever get to go to Israel with me, there's one particular mount in the city of Jerusalem to this very day that's named Mount Scopus after this general. So they're going to push towards Jerusalem in the next year at the Battle of Panion, which is at the headwaters of the Jordan, modern Banias or Panias, Antiochus III is going to defeat the Ptolemaic army. Now, you may not know where that place is, but if you go to the Sea of Galilee, and then you go north where the Jordan is emptying into the Galilee, there's this northern part, which is the headwaters which forms the Jordan River. When we go there, it's in the New Testament, the place called Caesarea Philippi. This is the place where Jesus will gather his disciples and he'll ask the question, who do men say that I am? And of course, they'll say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah the prophet. And then remember, he says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you're Jesus Christ the son of the living God. It's in this place, it's in this place that the Ptolemies are defeated 
the Seleucids take control of the glorious land. Now, again, it's at this point in history that Rome is beginning to take a foothold in Greece. They are waging a war in Macedonia, in what's called the Macedonian War. Now, all of this becomes so very, very important from a historical standpoint because, again, there are two factions in Jerusalem. The pro-Syrian faction, led by one high priest named Onius, number two, who's a pro-Ptolemaic, and, and, and then there is a, which is the pro-Ptolemaic faction, and then there's the powerful and influential Tobiad family, or the family of Tobias, who were in competition to be the high priest. Now, what's important for you to understand is that these two people who have joined with the South and who have joined with the North are vying for control of Jerusalem. And it's these priestly families that will become in the future what you know as Sadducees. These two priestly families. And so... Again, secular historians dispute the historicity of the story, but according to this account, these two factions vying for control want to throw off the yoke of oppression by the Egyptians. They decide that they're going to cast their lot with the Syrians, and it's going to be a huge mistake. Imagine you're living in World War II and you decide you're going to throw in your lot with Mussolini and Hitler. Yeah, now you get it. You mean if I throw in my lot with Mussolini and Hitler, what's going to happen? Horrible things are going to happen. A genocide is going to happen. Literally, it's going to result in the death of millions of people in World War II. For the Jewish people of Jerusalem, when they decide to support Antiochus, it's going to result in a horror in the future, which is going to come later in the chapter. And so now we see the facts from history. Look at verse 15. So the king of the north, Antiochus number three, shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him, but his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. The angel predicts the king of the north, Antiochus number three, is going to invade Egypt. What does that mean? Egypt controls Antioch. Egypt controls Sidon. Egypt controls the Galilee, Samaria, Phoenicia. And so what are the facts from history? Antiochus number three pursues Ptolemy's troops north to Sidon. Sidon is the little, it's a, actually a very large city and a port city that's going to be north of, if you know where modern Lebanon is, it's right there. The Syrian army is going to set up a siege against Sidon. He's going to eventually capture the fortified city in verse 15. The Syrian army is going to prove powerful. And the crack troops of Ptolemy are going to be unable to resist the Syrian army. They build a siege mound. They capture the city. Antiochus the Great is going to do what pleases him. And nothing is going to be able to stop him at this point. That's verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him. At this point, Antiochus has control of the glorious land. And it says, and destruction in his power. What does that mean? Destruction in his power means that he controls the land. And when he controls the land, he controls the people. And what does he do with the people at this point? He will take literally thousands of Jews and relocate them to what's called Anatolia or what's modern Turkey. There's a city there called Ephesus. And he will move gigantic portions of the population north. 
Now, again, he does so under the pretext that he is, he is saving them from the brutal oppression of the Egyptian peoples. And so the conquest is going to set the stage of one of his offspring, Antiochus number four, Epiphanes, who will literally oppress the Jewish people, persecute the Jewish people, crush the Jewish people, and he will become a type and a picture of a future Antichrist who will punish, persecute, and crush the Jewish people. Now we go back to what I said at the very beginning of our, of, of, of our time together. History. The history of the Jewish people is literally, in one sense, the history of the world. Because it's the history of God's dealing with the world. And then in verse 17, look what it says. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. What does all of this mean? If it were a Mexican telenovela, it would be filled with drama, passion, and betrayal. Antiochus number three is going to use his power to force Egypt, the king of the south, to sign a peace treaty. The peace treaty is going to include the giving of his daughter, Cleopatra, in marriage to Ptolemy number five, Epiphanes. Now, what you have to remember at this point is that Cleopatra is just a little girl. She's a child. And Ptolemy number five is a child. They're both under age 10. She's called the daughter of women. Why? Because, again, it's an idiomatic expression that seems to indicate a, a child. And he shall give him the daughter of women. That means a child. And, she sh and so what's the motive of Antiochus number three, her father? He wants to infiltrate the Ptolemaic dynasty. He wants to destroy the Ptolemy's ability to raise power, wield strength, and threaten his kingdom. He will live to see his plan fail. As a dowry, Antiochus number three will give to Ptolemy number five the combined revenues of coal Syria. Coal Syria is that area of Syria and Damascus, what we would call modern Lebanon and Syria. But he also gives, as a dowry, the Galilee, Samaria, Judea. But it was a promise that he never kept. The marriage was celebrated at Raphia, which is the city that has the entrance. It's sort of the border, if you will, between the king of the north and the king of the south. Modern Gaza. And by the way, Rafa is the modern area of the Palestinian Authority where the Palestinian Authority built its one and only international airport. The Palestinian Authority kept sending rockets into Israel and the, and the Jewish people, the Israeli army, came in and destroyed it a few years back. So this place, this place, Rafa, is a perpetual place of difficulty and conflict even to this day. So, having said all of that, Antiochus is going to try and corrupt his daughter. She want, he wants her to be a mole, so to speak, a spy who will steal her husband's heart and then give it over to her father, Antiochus number three, who decides he's going to invade Egypt. He collects a vast army and a navy but Antiochus receives a check in his ambition. This time, it's going to be from Rome. The Romans weren't yet a world power, but Rome's power and influence was growing. 
the defeated Hannibal sacked Carthage. So Rome has interests in the northern part of Africa. Antiochus is beginning to encroach on what Rome perceives as a possession of its turf. In other words, Rome has now invaded Macedon and taken parts of it. Rome has invaded and taken parts of North Africa. It's no secret that Antiochus wanted to absorb Pergamum and Greece. And so there's this growing hostility from now an outside power, Rome. In verse 18, it says, After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on them. How does Antiochus number three respond to the presence of the power of Rome? It says, After this he shall turn to the coastlands. What is the coastlands? This these are the Greek island states and their coastlands. This is the coastland of Macedon and Greece. It's the islands of Greece, the islands of the Mediterranean, and then the coastline of, of Greece. Antiochus number three is going to be soundly defeated in Macedon by the Romans. The future kingdom known as the Roman Empire, is going to humiliate him at what's called the Battle of Magnesia. Think milk of Magnesia. Magnesia is a city that was north, I'm thinking maybe about 50 miles north of Ephesus in what's modern Turkey. So after this humiliating loss, I want you to think about this. Antiochus has an army of 80,000 troops. He's defeated by the Roman general Lucius, Cornelius, Scipio. Some people call it Scipio, or Lucius Cornelius Scipio. He is one of the greatest Roman generals during the time of the Roman Republic. He will take a much smaller army and defeat the army of Antiochus number three because of their discipline and training, he will basically take that part of Greece, Asia Minor, and the Taurus Mountains. His son, Antiochus number four, is going to be held in ransom to Rome at the age of 14. So Antiochus number three's son is going to be taken to Rome. He's going to be educated, but he's going to be treated like a prince. He, but, but again, why do they take his son? To ensure Antiochus number three's good behavior. So he's going to remain with them and he's going to be fined. Antiochus number three is going to be fined by the Roman government 2,550 talents of gold. In order for you to understand how much gold that is, gosh, it's thousands and thousands of pounds of gold. Now what happens at this point in history is remarkable. The daughter of Antiochus secretly petitioned Rome against her father. She fell in love with her husband, wanted to remain with her husband, saw her father as a threat so the Romans send envoys to meet Antiochus number three. Antiochus insists that Rome has no interest in Egypt whatsoever. The Roman consul Asilius meets Antiochus at the pass of Thermopylae in Greece, <clears throat> defeats him, expels him from Greece. He is defeated by Livius on the sea and Lucius Amelius Regillus on the ground He's pretty much crushed. And now he's forced to pay an impossible tax. In verse 19, then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is code for he's going to die. Now remember, all of this is taking place over a 30-year period. In a surprising move, the king's own subjects, the citizens of Elimaeus, 
will kill their king because Antiochus number three will go into their temple, the temple of Baal, because he's got to raise money to pay this impossible tax and they kill him, his own citizens kill him. He stumbles and falls and is not found. In verse 20, there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So what follows? Remember the son of Antiochus number three, he has two sons. Antiochus number four, who's a prisoner in, in Rome. Seleucus number four, who's going to immediately succeed his father. Remember what I said. The humiliating defeat by Rome has put Syria deep in debt. Rome insists that Syria pay. And in order to raise the money, Syria is going to be forced to impose heavy taxes on the citizens of Syria, which include the Galilee and Samaria and Judea. And of course, you have this ripe, ripe plum called Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you have unbelievable wealth. Jerusalem is the temple of God. Jerusalem has a significant treasury. The people of Israel are now being severely oppressed by the new king and its leadership. Let me put it to you like this. Imagine a person says, they come to you and they say, I'm going to give you free college, free Medicare. You will get free everything from the moment that you die, live to the moment that you die. What's it going to cost us? Everything. You see, every dime that you make, every nickel that you make, every quarter that you make has to go back to the people who are taking care of you. Seleucus number four, Philopater, was considered to be a nice guy. Balanced temperament. He wants peace. He is tolerant. But he needs to pay his father's debt. He needs to figure out a way to pay Rome back. Toward the end of his reign, he sent his treasurer and tax collector, Heliodorus, to Jerusalem. Reread verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes. 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 Seleucus number four is going to send his treasurer and tax collector, Heliodorus, to Jerusalem. Here it's called the glorious kingdom. He's going to do it on the glorious kingdom to raise the much-needed tribute. The treasure is informed by one Simon, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, of the temple's great wealth. Now, remember, you've got the two factions of Tobias and Onias, the ones who formally supported the Egyptians and the one who formally supported the Syrians. And so he is told of Jerusalem's great wealth and he's going to settle the score with the high priest of Jerusalem and say, look, let me spell it out to you. We believe that the anti-Seleucid factions have been hoarding money. And so we are going to get the money back and we are going to rob the temple of Jerusalem in order to get the money back. Onias number three, who's the high priest of Jerusalem, is going to travel to Antioch to plead with Seleucus number four to please allow the temple to stand and that we could make some other arrangement and Seleucus number four mysteriously dies. Again, how did he die? It would appear that Heliodorus, again, embarks on this campaign to plunder the temple. He stopped short. 
by a supernatural apparition which appears right in front of the temple treasury. In other words, a supernatural being manifests itself right in front of Heliodorus and he panics. And he refuses to go into the temple. And he goes back to Antioch where he poisons Seleucus number four. He's killed by his own tax collector. Someone once said that there's two things that are certain. Death and taxes. According to Daniel chapter 11, there are possibly three things that are certain. Death, taxes, and then death by a tax collector. <laughs> the next section is going to reveal the tragic story of Antiochus number four, his brutal dealings with the Jewish people. He is going to become a type and a picture of a future antichrist who is going to rise to power and then plague and persecute the people of God. So what does all of this have to do with you? What does it tell us? The Lord God is the only true God. There's only one God who has infinite understanding, who says what he means and means what he says, and whose word is never broken. In Numbers 23, 19, it says, God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? All things are subject to God's will. He says, remember the former things long past. I am God, there is no other. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, it says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Declaring the beginning from the ancient times, which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish my good pleasure, unquote. God says, you're in trouble. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. I'm going to send that Savior. Satan is going to embark on a campaign to make sure that that doesn't happen. But he's going to miserably fail. Just like now. God still insists that each and every one of you need a savior. And then Satan embarks on a campaign. Don't go to church. Don't open your Bible. Keep it shut. Because if you open it and you read it, you're going to read about your future, about how the world is going to unfold. Messiah is going to be absolutely known by his credentials. It says in Isaiah, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I will proclaim them. Isaiah 48, verse 3, and then again in verse 5, Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Therefore I declared them to you long ago, before they took place. I proclaimed them to you, lest you should say, My idol has done them, and my graven image, and my molten image has commanded them, unquote. This is God's way of saying for the person who says, you know what? It was just a coincidence. Everything in Daniel 11, it was just a coincidence. It was just a coincidence that the Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem. It was just a coincidence that Persia rose to power. It was just a coincidence that, that Greece had this person named Alexander the Great. It's just a coincidence that the kingdom was divided into four. It's just a coincidence that a series of kings in the north and a series of kings in the south would compete over this particular piece of land called Israel. And it's just a coincidence that God's trying to talk to you and Satan's trying to keep you from hearing what God has to say. Do you know what prophecy does? It reveals in part that there is a God. 
it reveals in part an existence of his will and then the existence of his work. And the Bible makes it clear that predictive prophecy is evidence of God's power and glory and the supernatural work of God. Not just for the Jewish people. And not just simply to bring forth the Messiah. But it's to make sure that his plan and his purpose is accomplished in your life. And that means we still have a whole nother section to go in chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, I know that all of this stuff, people are going, my head is swimming. It hurts. But Lord, I pray that hearts would be comforted in knowing that there really is a God. That he's spoken about the future in advance. And that everything God said in the past came to pass. And everything God reveals about the future will absolutely take place. A Messiah is going to come. Jesus is going to be born. He's going to live and die and come back to life. There is such a thing as the future. And Lord, I pray that as we walk into that future, that we would take great comfort in knowing that no matter what, the promises in the Bible are going to come true. The real Jesus, that same Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven is going to come back. Nothing's going to stop him. It's going to happen at exactly the right moment, at exactly the right time. And now we understand why Jewish history really is the history of the world, the history of the beginning, the history of the end. Lord, thank you, praise you, and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.